In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering what to consider when you've gained some equity in your home and could afford to upgrade but don't need to, how to find a regional buyer's agent, some of the different fee models of buyer's agents, how banks are responding to their existing customers once their fixed rates expire, things to think about when you're buying a cemetery, yep, you heard us right, Uh, and a few other things we're going to cover in this episode. Welcome to the Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Hey guys, my name is James. I'm a big fan of the pod. I'm a young worker living in the lower North Shore of Sydney and I know there are a bunch of people like me who have bought apartments in Sydney. I've been told in the past, make your money work for you. I've been living in my apartment, coming on for five years now, and people always suggest to me that I should buy an investment property with the equity I have. We're not talking the numbers that you often refer to in the pod, though. So do you encourage people to make the most of any equity they have sitting around, jumping on the, you know, four to 500k investment property trend? Should I look to upgrade my place of residence even though I don't need it for lifestyle purposes? When is a good time to do these things or should I just be more patient? Thanks, guys. Have a good one. So, Chris, what are your thoughts on that? So, James, thanks for actually doing a a video question, a voice question as well. They're so amazing and so appreciate that. It's a really good question. I think you're thinking about things really logically. It's one of the, actually, a couple of weeks ago, a client came to me and, you know, their natural thought was, yep, we've got a house. Um, We need to go and buy an investment property. Similar, you know, terminology of what you've used as well. You know, we've got this equity, we've got the incomes, why don't we make our money work for us? But I think what you've done is you've been really smart and you've stopped yourself and said, what's my alternative? What other options have I got? Do nothing, upgrade my home, buy an investment property. And, you know, I guess what you really want to think, I mean, you bought a house, uh, an apartment on the Lower North Shore, you know, just because it's an apartment on the Lower North Shore doesn't mean absolutely it's an amazing investment. I would say it's a great spot to have an apartment. Um, you know, and just depending on the size of it, the bedrooms, the street, whether you've got parking aspects, et cetera, um, can help us really unpack it. Is it an amazing investment or is it, you know, just a, an okay apartment there? Um, if it's an okay apartment there, I guess we'd really want to know your future situation with your, you know, is it just you? Have you got a partner? You know, have kids? If you, you know, everyone's got different lives and different plans. So I guess maybe you might think in this situation, look, I don't need to upgrade. I'm totally happy here. I'm fine and the apartment suits me, but then you might say, look, there could be a future lifestyle benefit if I did upgrade. Um, You know, maybe I met someone or had a family. I've got an option for a property that could suit that, but also I might actually be better off just going into a bit more debt on my home if I end up getting in a much better apartment. And because your home grows tax-free compared to buying an investment property where you pay tax on it, you might say, well, yeah, I've got a bigger mortgage, but when I sell it one day, I'm going to have a much better asset to sell. So you know, it's a really good thing to think through, James. It's, it's because a lot of people in this situation, they go for the easy option. And the easy option is to buy an investment property. It's so easy to buy an investment property, really. Like 
you go to a bank, you know, a broker, get pre-approved, you know, go go start looking online, fall in love with something, buy it, and then you're done, right? To upgrade your home, it's not that simple, right? I'm not saying that's the way you should go about buying investment property. There's no. a lot more detail than that. <laughs> but that's obviously the mindset. Like it's it's because you're not living in a property. You haven't got this um, logistics to manage. When you want to upgrade your home, once you get your head around the the challenges of, you know, selling, um, buying, um, you know, potential may not have somewhere to live for a period there. How do you do it with a finance point of view? It's, it's a bit more of a, you know, a headache, I guess. There's a lot more pressure on you personally. But if you get a better outcome and then you stay there for 10, 15 years, I think that could be a better option in this situation if it meant you got a much better um, property. So good on you, James, for thinking about this and looking at other options because, yeah, just going and buying investment property, especially at that price point, um, it's really difficult because you're not going to be playing in the capital cities, um, you know, especially in the housing markets. You'd struggle in the apartment market, even in Brisbane at that price point. You'd be going to more the second, you know, the, the Adelaide, you know, the outrings, the second, third tier regions. And we, as you're listening to this podcast, you would know that you know that we're not as big a fans of those properties because of the scarcity um, and ultimately the demand that drives those markets. So, yeah, good question, James. Yeah, it is a great question, and it does pose something really interesting as well. And that is this idea of like, um, you know, what is enough? You know, because there's two aspects to this. It's like, okay, you got the cash flow and the on the income, obviously, that to potentially invest in something else. So. You can invest in other things other than property, and I think that's that's a really important thing. And if you've got really good cash flow and, and good income, then talk to a financial planner about what alternatives there are, right? Particularly if you can't afford to invest in a really good property. So if you're going to be buying something that's really risky, then then I would rather encourage you not to go look at borrowing all that extra money to buy something really risky, but you know, invest gradually over time or, or do something different with the money. So invest in a different way. So that's the first thing, but what Chris is talking about there in terms of assessing the caliber of the property you already own. And so that's where you might be missing a trick. Like if you have bought, so the, the lower North Shore in certain pockets has some lovely, lovely pockets, lovely small buildings, um, you know, great lifestyle, scarcity, blah, 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 blah. It also has a lot of high rises close to the hospital where a lot of investors are bought thinking, that, oh, you've got to be close to a hospital where lots of doctors and nurses want to rent the property and that makes a good investment, you know, where there's less scarcity. And so it, depending on the type of asset that you have, you might be missing a trick in terms of opportunity cost. And so your your home, you may not need more space and, and, and what Chris is saying is perfectly um, you know, reasonable to be thinking about as well as, well, where am I in my current state of life? Do I think I want a couple up at some time? Would I want to have kids and all that sort of thing? Because, you know, that is going to put different demands on you from a uh, property requirements. But assuming no, let's just say, oh, no, I actually am really comfortable and happy where I am and I don't need more space and I can't envisage needing more space. Really, the opportunity is to look at the caliber of the asset you currently own. And if it's a B or a C, particularly with a rising market as well, you know, it's an opportunity to actually get rid of a property that isn't an A-grade asset and change up. Because when you have a B or a C-grade asset, you really have to be ultra careful when you choose to sell it because a falling market is definitely not the time. So it could be that rising market, yes, you're going to have to pay more for whatever it is you, you upgrade to. And when we say upgrade, it's not about upgrading in size, it's upgrading in quality. So if you are really honest with yourself about the, the caliber of what you own and you think, you know what, if I had a better asset, I've got to suffer the, the cost of selling, the cost of you know buying back into the market, potentially paying a little bit more for a property as well, 
but I got something that grows at a greater rate in over time, that as an investment uh, and a tax-free investment because it's your own home is is going to do a hell of a lot more for you than buying something substandard in a, in a say, a third-tier location. So I guess looking at your own home as an investment is a really important um, exercise for all of us. You know, we certainly in our business encourage all of our clients to think of their own home as an investment. It's not to say that you, you're buying it with the idea of renting it out at any time. It's to think about it is taking a lot of your your income to fund it. You want to make sure that you maximize the return on that as an investment over time. So that would be another way that I look at that and just adding to what Chris has said. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you've nailed it. I think um, hopefully that was super helpful. On to our second question. This is from Alison. Hello, thanks for the podcast. It's so full of good quality info and interesting perspectives, and we do appreciate that. My question is, how do I find a buyer's agent for a country town area, which doesn't seem to have any? I'm a 48-year-old single parent, first home buyer, and although I feel I've learned a lot from this and Veronica Megan's first home buyer guide podcast uh, and courses, I still feel quite alone and like I need some help and guidance to find the right place in the area I want to move to. I've asked around, so she's asked her employer from that area and Facebook community page, but no buyer's agents they know of in the local area. What is your suggestion? Should I look to the nearest regional centre or city, or is that a bit pointless since they don't live in the town I'm looking in? I thought about renting there first, but there's a few rentals. I'm access, obviously she doesn't live there yet. I'm accessing the shared equity scheme, so for me it's more affordable to buy in the area than rent. Thanks for any advice. All right. Where do we start on this one, Chris? Look, I think this is your cup of tea around trying to find a buyer's agent. I do think that, you know, there is potentially um, danger in just trying to find a buyer's agent that's not experienced in the local market. And, you know, you're basically their guinea pig. And so just having a buyer's agent at all costs is not a great option. Um, and I can see this in the investment space where people are just like, yeah, well, you know, just get any buyer. They don't put enough DD around picking the right buyer's agent. They've already signed up because they think they just buy an investment property. You've got to have a buyer's agent. So, um, I think, I mean, even listening and doing your own research and, and starting to put the fundamentals, which you can put across from our capital cities to our middle outer rings, to regions, to different cities around the world, like, you know, property fundamentals, lack of like scarcity, you know, what's really desirable for, you know, the higher income, you know, couples and families, where they're building more, where they're not building more, um, where the locals want to live, all these things you could probably apply to any town. And so I think it's just really getting to know the local market um, you know, speaking to agents, speaking to property managers, and um, and you might have to do that due diligence yourself rather than outsource it and then picking some random buyer's agent. That would just be my take on it. Um, but I think it's just really looking at the city and saying, how, that town, how is it likely to grow? What are they going to, where are they going to build more properties? Where are they not going to build properties? You know, where do the locals want to be? Where do the locals not want to be? And and then also then saying, okay, well, like if I buy an asset here, is that going to stay scarce? And is that going to stay super desirable? as the town sort of grows over time. It is a great point. Look, it is an issue. It's actually the reason we built the Suburb Help um, website, so suburbhelp.com.au, and that really is because what I've done is gone across the whole of the country and I've interviewed heaps, hundreds, in fact, of buyers agents in various regional areas to try to work out what, you know, across the country, can we build up a database of buyers agents that I'd be prepared to recommend? And the answer is no, I can't build up that. And for two reasons. One is that literally they do not exist everywhere. So you, that's what you're discovering. But secondly, even if they do exist, they need to have uh, a few really important um, characteristics before I would recommend them. 
And the first is they need to have long experience, longevity of experience. I would like a buyer's agent, if they're working for themselves, that is, to have at least five years experience, at least, really ideally 10. Now, where do they get that experience if they're working for themselves? That's it's always a challenge, you know, and that's another issue, another 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 topic really. But the thing is that you're putting your hard-earned cash and trust in somebody to spend even more hard-earned cash and all those borrowings and make recommendations. If they don't have that that longevity of experience, they haven't been around the, the traps, they haven't seen cycles go up, cycles go down, they haven't seen what property sells well in a hot market and then doesn't sell well in a slow market, you know, they haven't had all of that experience, they can't guide you properly because they really haven't been through the through the mill. Um, so that's the first thing. They need to have length of experience. They also need to have local experience. So like you're saying, should I look to the nearest regional centre? No, not unless they do actually know that area very, very well because the um, the dynamics in every area are different and the type of property that people will like in one area versus another are different. There are subtleties to that. And yes, property managers can give you some guidance around that if you're looking for as an investment. Um, but even then, they'll talk about tenants. They won't talk about owner occupiers and who, you know, where do people want to buy. So there's a lot of subtlety that local experience can can bring to the table and that, that nuance that will make a huge difference in the decision that you make. And the third thing that we look for in buyers agents is do they have a documented and rigorous due diligence process. Do they actually um, evaluate the properties that they recommend and are they prepared to say no and tell you don't buy that? And too many buyers agents are transactional and what I call order takers and that is where you tell them what they want. Like, okay, and off they go and trot and find whatever it is you told them you want and they find that and they buy it for you without interrogating whether you know enough to actually know all the pros and cons of what you've just asked for, but also whether they can bring some value add to the whole equation to go, you know what, you said you were looking for one of those, but have you thought about this or this or this? There's lots of other alternatives. So that's the sort of the three criteria I look, I look for when I'm looking to decide whether or not I'm going to recommend a buyer's agent. So if you can't find one in that area or you can't find one with those characteristics, then you need to go and build that level of education around the area yourself, as Chris was saying. And that's one of the reasons we created Your First Home Buy Guide, which is a, is a course that teaches you effectively to buy better the process to buy and it teaches you to be quite frank better than some buyers agents buy you know so i tell you what you go and spend 990 bucks go and learn how to buy better than some buyers agents <laughs> your home and house really and when you are also borrowing a huge proportion of the value of the property because you you're taking advantage of a government um, deposit um, guarantee then you know you've really got to make sure that you are not you know running the risk of getting into negative equity and that is buying a property that will be worth less um the minute you buy it than you just then you owe the bank you know that's that's your big risk so you've really got to invest that time now obviously that is easier if you can go and rent in the area but as you've said it's really difficult so i would rent probably in the nearest regional central city if there's more opportunity to rent somewhat close by and spend weekends really getting to understand that area. It's really, really important. And I know it's difficult, but if you can't find a buyer's agent that would satisfy my criteria, regardless if they exist in the town that you want to buy in, but they don't satisfy that criteria, then you have to do it 
you have to upskill yourself. That's really the only answer. Yeah, it's a good point there around sort of, I mean, renting first, you might say it's more affordable to buy in that area, but you know, what's the, you know, more costly if you just decided to rent for six months and then go, I don't actually want to live here anymore, you know? Maybe that's uh, that additional cost is very minimal compared to if you buy, you pay stamp duty, you've got selling costs, you've in the shared equity scheme, you buy the wrong property. So, you know, I guess it's really a case of going, well, there is a cost, additional cost potentially for a short period of time, but there is a value in that. It's clarity, it's more certainty, it's knowing getting a better investment. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think that's worth the the risk. I mean, it, it always has a concern around a rising market. And, you know, if I buy, don't buy now, then I can't buy in six months. So you've got to always factor that in a little bit. Um, but also you don't want to get too much wrapped up in the FOMO where you, you know, if the market is rising and then you all of a sudden you, you rush your decisions. So, um, yeah, it's a good question and, um, yeah, we wish you, wish you well with it. Third question is from many, um, he or she, uh, or they <laughs> say, I have noticed that some buyers agents charge flat fee for their services, but when then change to a percentage fee, when they're targeting a property over a certain dollar figure. I'm curious to understand why this is when the due diligence and scope of work should be the same for a property less than a million uh, for that of more than a, a million. Am I missing something? Now, Chris, I'll, I'll go to you first because you are not a buyer's agent. So from the outside looking in, and I know you work with a lot of buyer's agents, you recommend a lot of buyer's agents, so you would be familiar with a lot of different pricing models. What are your thoughts on this? Look, it's hard, right? So I think there's you know a lot of work that's uh, fixed in buyer's agency work, you know, like no matter what, how, what type of purchase price you buy at. Um, ultimately, though, I do think the the capital city, the higher price points, and, you know, a good buyer's agent that's looking for scarcity, that knows what they're doing, is going to have a much harder job than buying, you know, something sub a million where there's lots of options and, you know, there's always choice, right? And this is one of my big bugbears with a lot of big buyer's agents out there who haven't been doing it that long, well under those five years you're talking about, Veronica, haven't seen market cycles and are buying at low price points where it's easy to buy and easy to do lots of transactions. Um, and they can charge small fees. And because, you know, they all of a sudden, two weeks into, all of a sudden I've got this and I'm buying it under market value because why are you buying something under market value? nobody um, wants it. <laughs> exactly. So I do think that, you know, there's a huge value add in the buying in scarce markets from buyers agents and there's a lot of work involved. And it's not about saying, oh, that works related to an hourly rate. That's not exactly... You're not, you know, you're comparing an expert who has years and years of knowledge who can make decisions in minutes that's taken years for them to be able to make those decisions, right? So you're not paying for the minutes, you're paying for the years. And so that's my sort of, it's not, you can't really say that, you know, buying a property at any price point is the exact same amount of work. It just doesn't work like that. And the more scarce the property is, the harder it is to buy. And, you know, there's months and months of research and agents and negotiating and missing out and going back to market and changing your strategy and, um, you know, I'm fighting f to get that deal done. And that's why I think that, you know, um, you know, as the price point goes up, buyers agencies fees go up. So I'm not sure if that answers your question entirely, but um, yeah, fees will go up as price points go up. Uh, a couple of things I would say as well is that, um, you know, I, I actually don't really understand why a buyer's agent charges a percentage of the price because it is counterintuitive as the more you spend, that means the more you pay your buyer's agent, whereas our value add has to be slightly different to that. So so it's not quite, uh, quite well aligned with the value add. So, you know, I don't agree with that. Uh, so we charge a fixed fee, but, you know, it will go up with, I guess, you know, obviously a less expensive property is 
typically going to be require less work. But I get on the face of it, you say, well, the due diligence is the due diligence. You should be following the same process for every property. So there's a couple of issues here. One is that, like, for instance, with a, um, an investor, we will um, charge a fixed rate that is less than we would charge for an owner-occupier. And the reason being that investors typically would say to us, well, Veronica, you and your team, you recommend to us what we be- what you believe is a good investment and then you'll do all your due diligence, you'll set pricing recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. We buy it within the range, all good. We don't buy it in the range, that's fine. We move on to the next one. It's quite cut and dry. With a an owner-occupier in our business anyway, we call it property therapy. There's a lot of work involved working through, because quite often it's a couple and you've really got to work through quite a lot of issues to get them what they want and it's not easy finding, um, it's not easy finding a good property at any time, but it's obviously that level of complexity and that they've got to like it, they've got to want to live in it, it's got to be right for their family, it's got to, you know, fit in their overall plan and there's a lot more uh, to to involved in working on a search for a an owner-occupier, it will also typically take longer because they've got more exacting requirements than an investor. So there is time in terms of the length of the service and how long you would expect it to take to find and secure the right property. There's also time involved, obviously, in the in the due diligence and the evaluation phase. And there's time involved in how unusual, you know, how unique um, the, the property that you're after is and, and how often you're going to come up with one. So there, there's a lot of those sort of variabilities that are over and above how, you know, the, the due diligence that you might say you follow the same process for every property. So finding the right property, saying no to you and recommending you don't go for something, there's value in that. I just spoke to an old client of mine, I bought a number of properties for over the years and he's looking now at a home and we really talked through, you know, him not engaging us to do the evaluation on a property, just in the intel that we got on one particular property we were talking to him about before he's decided whether he goes for it or not, honestly, him left to his own devices would spend probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars more on that property because he wouldn't realise that he's, in the in the agent's eyes, he's the buyer. That agent's already got him locked in the crosshairs. That agent has already worked out how they're going to get the most out of that guy. And without us to hold him back and rein him in, he would pay it. And I tell you the amount of times we we stop people from paying what they would pay themselves unguided. So there is value in that. I've never charged anybody hundreds of thousands of dollars for a search. You know, some buyers agents might, but I can tell you there's plenty of times where I've saved clients hundreds of thousands of dollars because of what they would have done without the guidance. So when the risk and the potential for overpaying, get, obviously the the higher the value of the property is, the potential of overpaying gets larger and larger. So the the value add in terms of saving you from yourself also gets larger and larger. So there's just so many different ways at looking at the value that a buyer's agent, an experienced buyer's agent, can bring to the table, uh, and that's one of the reasons why the fees would dif- would differ depending on the value of the property. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. You're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. 
please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, and on the fixed fee to percentage, um, I absolutely understand, right? You know, you, you don't want to be paying more money if you end up bidding more, right? Ultimately, though, I think if you go to any of those buyer's agents, Veronica's, uh, which you mentioned earlier in these questions, you know, how she picks great buyer's agents, they're pretty much exactly the same. Experience, local knowledge, a team, you know, a proven track record, great relationships with local agents, you know, um, you know, not a big business, usually a small business, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of the big businesses, the value proposition starts to get diluted. Um, and those buyers agents, yep, some of them do charge percentages. But if you say to them, look, I just want to agree a flat fee, absolutely, every single one of those will agree a flat fee. You just take it off the table. It's just a, it's just a way. And so do not compare buyers agents solely on fees. Compare your buyers agents based on the value add and the fit to the brief that you're looking to buy and and their expertise and their knowledge and your confidence in that. The fees, if, if you pay an extra $5,000 for one here versus that, you're focusing on the wrong thing. What you want to do is what's going to give you the highest likelihood of getting the asset you want, a quality asset, is going to give you trusted advice, isn't just going to be a yes validator and transactional, um, and challenge them on that. You know, how are you going to stop me buying a property? You know, how are you going to really price a property? You know, um, are you going to stay, say it's a poor property even if I'm in love with it? You know, um, and so, yeah, I think that's, they're the things you want to compare on. It's like when people compare brokers, don't compare on rate, compare on experience, knowledge, and the trusted advisor relationship versus, you know, you know, just getting someone who's going to deliver the bank product that you want. So great question, Manny. It's a classic, actually, you say that last night um, for my buyer's agent mentoring program, every month I do deliver a new masterclass on sort of in-depth, deep dive in a, in a particular topic. And last night's um, masterclass I delivered was on vendor advisory service. And we did an interview uh, end of last year, I think it was, with a vendor's advisor or a vendor's advocate. And so a lot of buyers agents are offering this as a service and we're talking through how do you choose a sales agent? And it's very, it's funny because you're just sort of saying don't choose on fees. You've got to choose for capability first, capability and fit first. And it's exactly the same thing process that we go through when choosing a sales agent to help our clients sell their property. It's like if you focus on the fee at that first meeting, you are absolutely focusing on the wrong things. And so also somebody's prepared to bend over in the first meeting before they really have a full understanding of the scope of what, the difficulties, what the difficulties you're going to present, the challenges, and, and really what you're wanting to achieve. Um, but they're, they're talking fees straight up and, uh, you know, they potentially could be a, a sausage factory, you call them, you know, they're just pumping you through the door. It's a volume business and they just got to keep buying to keep the turnstiles going. And you do, definitely do not want to be buy, do engaging a buyer's agent who, who operates in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the first questions we get, you know, to a client, would you consider using a buyer's agent? Uh, yeah, but you know, what are their fees? It's like, you know, try to understand the value proposition, try to go and meet the top buyer's agents in that market, understand, you know, and then try to understand whether the fee's worth that value, you know, because that's, that's what you've really got to weigh up. And until you understand the value, how can you really justify, understand what the fee really means? And so, um, good question, Manny. I tell you what, if, if the buyer's agents are just saying, I just save you time, money, and find you off markets, run a mile because that is just tip of the iceberg. All right. Fourth question is from Tim. Hi, Veronica. Chris, as you have discussed previously, each 1% increase in the cash rate relates to about 10% borrowing capacity drop. My question relates to the people who have bought in close to their max since COVID and they're, they're on a fixed loan around 2%. 
given they have already bought, in speaking with the banks, people in the industry, are you finding the banks are moving these customers onto variable rates above? Basically, are the banks offering discounts really, I guess, to retain the customers? Um, or are they recommending they reapply for new 30-year loan to lower the repayments? Or are they recommending they sell the property given a new loan rate expectation closer to 4.5%? Right. So what do you think? And so this is definitely a question for you there, Chris. Look, it's a great question, Tim. You're, you're bang on. Like a 1% increase in the RBA rate is probably about a 10% reduction in capacity. You know, today the RBA meets, maybe we're up over a 4% increase in the RBA rate. That's potentially a 40% reduction in borrowing capacity. Um, now, there may be some wage increases that have come off that. And there's also, you know, living expenses increase, which has come off that. So I think around 40% reduction in capacity is probably pretty close. You know, we were getting loans at seven and a half, maybe eight times income. We're lucky to get five times income right now. So you can see absolutely if you bought in 2020 or 2021 when borrowing capacity was really relaxed, it's very hard to refinance right now. And so the good news is though, you know, in the past, you would have said, this is not a great situation. You would be a mortgage prisoner and the banks would basically take advantage of you because they know you can't refinance and they would leave you on a very uncompetitive variable rate. And you'd know when you look online and you see all this advertisement that your rate would be way out of market and the banks would just be laughing because, hang on a sec, you can't refinance for two reasons. One, you haven't got the capacity, but also two, you might not have the equity because valuations have also come down since 2021 and so you might have bought with an 80% loan, but now that's a 90% loan, right? And so it's a good question, Tim. There's a lot of people are struggling with this at the moment. But the good news is banks are pricing existing customers, even if you can't refinance at most lenders, at the same rate, even if you've got a fixed rate, the same as what they're probably giving new customers. It's unbelievable what the banks are doing. They're retaining customers with lower variable rates really easily. You know, you look at a lot of the big players, there is one bank that's taking a, you know, a real the other foot and saying, no, no, I know you're not going to refinance. I'm just going to leave your variable rate really high, which isn't good at getting great customer loyalty right now. Would you share who that is? That's Macquarie at the moment. Um, we do about 30% of our loans at Macquarie. We're massive lovers in it and they, they've made a decision to, to come out of market. Um, but, you know, NAB, St. George, um, CBA, ANZ, everyone's pricing really hard to retain customers. And so, look, they're not really extending loan terms, um, you know, because that's a serviceability assessment. Look, if you get to a situation where you're getting close to arrears, we had one client out of all our clients got in this situation um, recently. They end up getting it um, back off okay in the end. But speak to your lender early, you know, because there will be things they'll be doing behind the scenes like extending loan terms, giving payment holidays, going interest only. Absolutely. Because, you know, there is very low arrears rate. You know, banks are doing quite well. So I think they're supporting customers there. Um, we don't. We haven't got many clients going through it. but I. So I would speak to the bank. The interesting thing as well, what's happened is, uh, Westpac got approval from APRA. We heard about this before the market heard about it. And Westpac, and I think all the other banks are going to do this as well, is they can basically do refinances with a 1% assessment rate, not a 3% assessment rate, which means that you've got an extra 20% borrowing capacity to refinance. And so that's making it much easier to refinance. There's also these things called easy refinances happening where as long as your new repayments are lower than your existing repayments and you've been able to maintain that for the last six to 12 months, no problems you potentially can refinance without a full serviceability assessment. So this is just something that's happening. So these are great for consumers, all of these changes. There's nothing really negative, but unfortunately your rate is jumping up. So your good rate right now, assuming the RBA goes up today, it's probably around 5.6, but if they don't go up, maybe around 5.4, that's what a good rate is at the moment. 
Um, so even though the RBA is at 3.85, your variable rate's only jumping up to 5.4. It's not like 6 or 6.5%, which a lot of the media is saying. And you should be able to get that pretty easily, you know, just by calling your bank um, or if, you know, a broker can send a pricing for you. So but stay on top of it, Tim. It's, it's pretty scary for those people who bought at the top of the market. I mean, the, the good news is that, um, you know, depending on the asset you bought, um, you know, there is a bit of stability in prices in certain pockets, right? And so while bigger mortgage repayments, people aren't also worried about prices of properties falling um, for certain assets, which is, you know, a double whammy at the moment, like it was in 2022. So yeah, hopefully that was helpful, Tim. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously that proportion of people that did buy, say in 2021, particularly first home buyers who have very little equity, particularly if they took the 5% deposit scheme, you know, they might be feeling very, very nervous and, and their repayments, you know, are going to hit real hard if, if they were fixed and they're coming off that fixed rate too. So there, but I think we also have to remember that there's a lot of talk about the mortgage cliff and we've discussed it many, many times in this podcast. You know, I'm literally on Saturday, my, uh, one of my loans came off fixed rate. Um, ouch, you know, boom. my bank has come to the party in terms of offering a, a reasonable rates, you know, gave me lots of options, et cetera, et cetera. That was very proactive of them. Um, but yeah, well, it was, it's been a bit painful, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy about that at all, but the fact is that I've owned the property a long time and I've got a lot of equity and I sort of always got options. Whereas somebody who's just bought into the market would be feeling very nervous in the whole scheme of things. That is a small percentage of all the people that own properties with mortgages in this country. Um, and, and a smaller percentage of all the people that own property, cause you've got to remember a third have no debt on them at, at all. So from a in terms of a systemic thing that's going to change the you know how the market behaves you know it's it's not as cataclysmic because it doesn't affect everybody but at the same time individuals suffering this is going to be horrible so i think it's nice to see that the banks have been proactive and it's also nice to see that the big four in particular have stopped offering you know trying to fight for new clients and offering people two grand to move and instead of finally starting to look after their own their own business so that's heartening right our final question is a bit of an unusual one it's from phil um phil often sends me questions and um uh but they're a bit out there like unique to himself but this one is is a little out there but i thought it's a good one to chat about um from time to time surplus to requirements places of worships as in churches hit the market uh, majority listed are the building only on a parcel land but in in the instance um one is listed with its own cemetery included in the purchase what are the things to consider um in do the members of the public have the right of entry to grave sites etc so i thought this is a bit out there and you know what there is a facebook page called Ch churches for sale which phil has actually shared with me and i've been in there all across the country there's these little churches so i thought we'd um just look at we just sort of list through some of the things that you would need to be thinking about a if you're going to buy a little country church somewhere to to convert into a residence but b if it does happen to have a cemetery tacked onto the side have you ever thought about it chris i have to say no um have, have a client considered buying a church before yes um i mean you are looking a bit of an opportunist here phil looking at um buying cemeteries um i mean you look at clovelly cemetery right in sydney i mean what is that worth that that land is is worth billions um you know and that must be if you've got to buy any cemetery in australia that would be it so I mean, if it's if it is land that you can potentially change the zoning on and turn it to residential, um, uh, and people are happy with that, maybe you need to disclose it when you're selling the land that it was. Um, 
used to be a cemetery. Um, yeah, it, it's a very interesting one. I mean, a church, we had a client who has bought a church and converted it to a childcare center. And yeah, so you can potentially get a change of zoning and um, yeah, it could be a cool commercial space that they could tack onto it, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, that's just the thoughts I have on this one, but I haven't got much to add here, Phil. Sorry. Um, what do you think, Veronica? Well, it's funny. When I was filming the show, Location, 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 there was um, one episode where we were looking in the hinterland of Byron Bay, around Mullumbimby, that area, and we did actually inspect two former churches that had been converted into residences, and I don't know, I've got one of those um, – you know, I have that sort of weird romantic notion about living in a converted church in the country. <laughs> so for me, I'm like, oh, my God, I wanted to buy one of them, but um, glad I didn't. And the the contributor of the show didn't buy it either. But, you know, interestingly enough, they're not all converted to residences when they sell. So you do have to consider things like zoning and what is it required from the local council in order to be able to convert it to a residence. I would imagine, and also whether it's heritage listing, uh, listed as well, and some people are a bit superstitious about old churches, I, or it's certainly with cemeteries attached to them. Um, some people are, so, are very superstitious around the dead, so you might have a, a long, you know, you might have an issue with resale, uh, depending on that. But I wondered too, before sort of get specifically to the cemetery bit, um, lending. Is there an issue with lending for old churches if they haven't been rezoned residential? Oh, you definitely want to be all over the top of the lending. Um and know exactly what you can and can't do and get approval from the bank um, that you're likely to want to use. Um, you might have lots of options with lending. You might have a huge deposit and, you know, um, heaps of serviceability and um, lots of lenders will look at you. But if, if you have got a bit of a tricky situation, like you have to use certain lenders because you're self-employed or whatever it is, then get approval from those lenders on that type of asset. They absolutely will do that. They'll look at the asset. They can get it approved by credit, um, and then you know exactly what LVR you're going to get approved on. So, um, yeah, absolutely be all a, all a nice and close relationship with your broker here and um, explaining what you're looking to do. And then lastly, in relation to the cemetery, um, what is – I did do a bit of research here because I thought, look, I want to find out what – you know, how common is this? So it's a bit obscure, so therefore there's not a lot of stuff on YouTube. But I did oh, – sorry, on um, Google, but I did find um, a link for um, sale of cemetery in – Tasmania, right? It's actually guided by the Burial and Cremation Act 2019. And I put a link to an article in the show notes if you're interested. And basically, they're saying that before a cemetery can be listed for sale, the owners must receive a certificate of compliance by the Department of Premier and Cabinet. And as for buyers, they have to take a short exam to become the cemetery's manager. So there are a lot of issues with the cemetery thing. You know, it's not easy to redevelop a cemetery, I wouldn't think. Um, so I would, I guess, approach it assuming you have to leave it. You can't sort of suddenly garden it and hide it or, you know, <laughs> landscape it and hide it or build on it. I think that there'd be a, quite a lot of restrictions involved, but I thought that was quite interesting that to buy it as a, as a residence in Tasmania, you have, you are taking on an additional responsibility that's well and truly over and above what you would normally have just buying a home. So that was some food for thought there. Yeah, I can't really ever see a cemetery be, like, being like a golf course, right? Or by living by building around the sea, right? You don't have that as your feature point uh, to sell your community. No. <laughs> that we've got, um, you know, we've got great views all overlooking the cemetery, etc. So, 
um, yeah, good luck with that one, uh, Phil. And um, looks like you've got a bit of time on your side um, looking at these investment opportunities. It's definitely time, is he, time in his hands. All right, thanks for your questions. We've got another Q&A episode coming up in, uh, I don't know, a month and a half or so. And um, keep the questions coming in and try to use that speak pipe little button on the website. It's pretty cool. We love to hear your voice, not just ours. It, you've got to admit it makes the podcast a bit more interesting. Thanks so much for the questions and keep them coming. Talk to you soon. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.